Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 20. A passage that uh, we have looked at as Sunday school children, a passage that uh, is often the title of a vacation Bible school week, but uh, the contest on Mount Carmel, an exciting time in the life of Elijah and great lessons here, uh, even a familiar passage as we come back to it and see it today. So 1 Kings chapter 18 beginning in verse 20. By the time we have come to this event on Mount Carmel, Elijah has been hiding for three and a half years. God has been training him in matters of trust, of humility, of compassion, of prayer, and now he is ready for a public ministry. Warren Wearsby writes, we must admire Elijah's patience as he waited three years to preach one sermon. Notice, first of all, in verses 20 and 21, the place for a decision. We left Elijah last week face-to-face with King Ahab, standing there looking right at him. And Ahab asked, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah said boldly, No, it's you and your fathers that are the ones to blame. And Elijah was the one who told Ahab then to gather all of Israel together. Bring them to Mount Carmel, bring your 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the groves that sit at Jezebel, your wife's table. And Ahab was the one who obeyed Elijah. We ended last week with verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. So let's consider the place of this contest between God and Baal. Uh, The Hebrew word for Carmel means a fruit field. From the north, as you approach the Mount of Carmel, it it appears to be bald and barren, no growth on it. But would you look at the mountain from the south, you'll see flowers, myrtles, laurels, uh, oak trees, firs. Uh, So it was called Carmel because of that, the, the fruit field. This mountain stands at the end of a range that runs from the Mediterranean Sea southwest just beneath the valley of Esdraelon. The peak of Mount Carmel is almost 1,800 feet above sea level. The contest that we're talking about in this passage probably took place on those southeastern slopes at a place called El Moraca. There's a Carmelite monastery there, Carmelite going back to this event. Those were followers of Elijah. And El Moraca means the burned place. Now I wonder where it got that kind of a name. A rocky cliff rises 200 feet above the valley, and there's a small level place at the top of that cliff where Elijah and the prophets of Baal could easily be seen by multitudes that were gathered below. Kylan Delich writes, This wall, that is that rocky face, made it possible or made it visible over the whole plain and from all the surrounding heights so that even those left behind who had not ascended Carmel would still have been able to witness at no great distance the fire from heaven that descended upon the altar. Just below the top of this plateau, there is, there's a fountain that is spring-fed. It has, uh, is shaped in the form of a tank, and there are steps leading down into it. And there would have been an easy place to take those three trips to fill the water pots that are mentioned in verses 33 and 34. It was important that every person would see what God was going to do. In verse 19, Elijah told uh, Ahab to gather all the people. 
We see that word all three times in, in just three verses. In verse 20, Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel. And in verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people. And Elijah posed a question to everyone that was there of faith and a question that required obedience. Verse 21, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Notice the ones addressed. Again, he's talking to all the people. He's asking everyone there. Who was there? Well, King Ahab was. The prophets of Baal were there. And those who followed that Baal worship. The prophets of the groves were there. The idolaters who worshipped at the groves were there. No one from Israel was left to say, you know, Elijah wasn't talking to me. All Israel. He addresses them. And then the question, how long halt ye between two opinions? The word halt is often used for a person that's lame in one leg or one foot. And so he's saying, why are you hesitating between one leg and the other? Why are you of two opinions? Why are you limping on both sides? You ever been riding a horse and and you come to a fork in the road, and you're not quite sure where to go, and the horse probably wants to go back to the barn to have the oats. But he stops, and, and he's there. He'll, he'll shift his weight from one foot to the other. That's the idea here, shifting weight. How long are you doing to, going to do this, Israel? Make up your mind. Decide. Now, the children of Israel may have reasoned, well, Jehovah's led us out of Egypt. Everyone knows that's our history. But now we've married wives in the area where Baal is worshipped. And Baal is the god of the sun, the rain, the weather. So can't we just cover both bases? We'll say we worship the god of the Bible, but why not just provide room for some of the other gods that are of the, of the area that might have an influence over the weather? After all, this is an agricultural reason, re, region, and we don't want to offend anyone that's here. Isn't it wrong to impose our religion on them? And you hear all these same, same arguments that people give today of why they're not standing for Christ. It's called syncretism, combining different beliefs. The problem with that is God said in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In Isaiah, he says, I will not give my glory to another. There's only one God. And he alone is to be worshipped. Their answer is interesting to me. They answered not a word. And by their silence, they were saying, I don't want to choose. Don't make me. I'm going to stay here with the silent crowd. And really, in order for me to say anything, it's going to take a demonstration from God. And that's exactly what takes place. There are times when you need to come to a place of decision. How long are you going to try to live to please God and still follow false gods? How long are you going to try to live for yourself and still say that, you know, I'm living for Christ, I'm a Christian? How long halt ye between two opinions? The second point is found in verses 22 through 24. That was the place of a decision, now the challenge. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. 
but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, all capital letters there, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. In other words, let him be recognized as who he is, as God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now it looks like Elijah here is in the minority. The 450 prophets of Baal are there. The other 400 prophets uh, are not mentioned. They are the prophets of the groves who worshipped uh, Asherah. Uh, Baal was the god of the sun. Asherah was the goddess of the moon. Asherah is what the Philistines called her. Uh, the Phoenicians called her Astarte, and the um, Assyrians called her Ishtar, same person. Well, the numerical odds are 450 to 1, as far as the prophets of Baal and Elijah go. If this were a physical contest, if this were a tug of war, there's no way Elijah is going to win. But this is not a physical contest, and neither is yours. This is a spiritual battle. And God alone is the one who gives victory in spiritual warfare. Ultimately, this is not Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. This is Jehovah against Baal. I remember when David ran to Goliath, he said, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. He didn't defy the armies of Israel. He's talking about the God. He was in direct opposition to God. Well, it looks like Elijah's on the wrong side. Baal was the God who controlled the rain, the weather, fertility, life. He's the one who sent lightning from the skies. And of course, fire from heaven sounds a lot like the lightning would work here. He was often depicted as a statue with a lightning bolt held in his hand. But there had been no rain for three and a half years. And the people may have been scratching their heads thinking, I wonder if Baal really is as powerful as we say he is. Elijah was the one that set the ground rules. And the people agreed to all the terms that he set up. Each side was to choose a bullock to cut it in pieces. In, in Elijah's case, it calls it dressing it. So it's cutting those pieces out and laying it on the altar. Elijah let the prophets of Baal choose the first bullock. Rule number two was to lay it on the wood with no fire under it. Put no fire under it. In other words, we're not going to allow any cheating there was a practice of using a fuse to ignite the sacrifice, and that's why Elijah states this rule. He says it twice, verse 23, once in verse 25. The person who makes up the rules often does that to give himself an advantage. I don't know if you've ever played backyard football and the rules get made up as you go along. But here, uh, Elijah is, is not, not giving any kind of rule that's going to be an advantage to him. He wants to make sure that nobody has any doubts that they're in their mind, that when God answers, it's God who answers and not a trick. If we want to see God's power today, 
We need to stop relying on our own ingenuity, on our own strength and our own plans and powers. Moses at the Red Sea said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, that Christians today would recognize God hasn't changed. He's still omnipotent. You can still trust him to do exceedingly great things. Rule number three, to call on the name of the gods. Elijah would call on the name of the Lord Jehovah. And so Elijah let them go first to this contest. And he said in the, the conclusion, after the rules, the God who sent fire would be recognized as the one who's the true God. And they said, it's well spoken. In other words, it sounds fair. They agreed to the rules of the contest. Let's look first of all at how the prophets of Baal were defeated, verses 25 through 29. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods. Remember, Baal had several different, the, the Balaam uh, is, is the plural, several different uh, personifications of this false god. Call on the name of your gods and put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. There is no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking or he's pursuing or he's on a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be wakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. What did they cry out? O Baal, hear us. How long did they do that? We're given several time frame indicators in that passage I just read. Their attempt started in verse 26 at, in the morning and until noon, verse 27 at noon. Remember, uh, Baal is the god who rides a chariot with the sun. He's the sun god. F.B. Meyer writes, three hours passed in this way. So he's thinking morning was nine o'clock, nine till noon at least. Their sun god deity slowly drove his golden car up the steep of heaven and ascended his throne in the zenith. It was surely time of his, the time of his greatest power, and he must help them if ever. But all he did was to bronze to a deep tinge the eager upturned faces of his priests. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He does this. I believe, to show his utter confidence in God. Baal must be talking. He gives these four things that he may be doing, showing that he's, he's limited in the same way humans are limited. He's talking. He's, he's in a, he can only have one conversation at a time. Aren't you glad the true God can talk to us all and listen to your prayers? Or he's busy. He can't be reached. He's traveling. He can't be omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time, and so he must be gone and just wait for him to come back. Or he's sleeping, implying that Baal grows weary. He's not powerful. He needs rest. And the prophets of Baal continued. That must have fed their anger and hostility toward what Elijah was doing. 
And they cut themselves with knives and lancets, either to show how sincere they were in their religious faith or as an attempt to punish themselves for their own sins to earn the favor of Baal. Verse 28, that little phrase, after this manner, that's the way they did it all the time. Self-abuse has always been a custom of pagan ritual worship for centuries. It's even going on in our world today. Their prophecies were unfulfilled. The prophets of Baal continued all day until the afternoon, 12 until 3 o'clock, the time of the evening sacrifice. And they kept trying to get Baal to answer them. But their prayers were empty. They cried aloud. Their efforts were futile as they cut themselves to show their earnestness. Their efforts were futile. Their prophecies were unfulfilled. They prophesied that Baal would hear, would answer, but he never did. Notice the failure of Baal. These worshipers were sincere. They were earnest. They were committed, but they were committed to a false religion, a man-made God. And nothing can be more pathetic than to see people following false gods sincerely with such blind devotion. Verse 26, but there was no voice nor any that answered. Verse 29, there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And today people are following man-made religions and self-made gods. And it's just as pathetic to watch, no matter how sincere they are, If they're worshiping anyone other than the one true God, their prayers are always going to be empty. Their efforts are always going to be futile. Their prophecies will always be unfulfilled. Now we come to the victory in verses 30 to 38. Elijah may have remembered the events when the temple was dedicated in Leviticus chapter 9. And God sent fire from heaven to consume the first sacrifice was made in front of the tabernacle. Elijah wanted that same God to prove himself today. He repaired, first of all, the broken down altar, verses 30 through 32. Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. Worship was being restored. Elijah called the people to come near. It was a call so they could see what would happen, but it was also a call to come back to God. The altar at Carmel was probably built by someone from the ten northern tribes so that they could worship the one true God. The kingdom was divided at this time. Recently, it would have been torn down that altar by Ahab himself, by his orders. Worship was restored. Unity was restored. Remember, he, he, he set up 12 stones, national unity. The ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes to Uh, of Judah, now united in this one picture of worship to God, the one true God. So I think of the repairing of this broken altar. I wonder how 
How many of us have altars that need to be repaired? The altar of family unity, broken apart. God wants us to repair that. Of sacrificial living, you haven't really done anything that costs you anything for the Lord. The altar of a consistent testimony, of faithful church attendance, of cheerful service, of brotherly love, of friendships restored. Is there anything that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about that needs to be repaired? An altar in your life. He prepared the sacrifice, verses 33 through 35. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. Wood was one of the rules as described back in verse 23. The bullock was also part of the challenge in the same verse. The water, though, was, was beyond what they said would be a requirement. Four barrels of water. The word barrels there would be the water jugs that were often carried on the head of someone. And they filled those jars three times. They, they, they filled the trench, and, the, and, and they, they poured it in the trench and on the altar. The two measures here, uh, some have measured that to be eight pecks of seed, as they would be sown in, a, in, a, in an agricultural society. Why did Elijah soak the sacrifice down with, with water? Well, once again, to prove this is an impossibility. God is the one who's going to do this. If you've ever tried to start a campfire with wet wood, it's a difficult thing unless you have a propane torch and some dry wood to go along with it. But God is able. Do you ever make things harder for God to answer? How big is your faith? When things are impossible for you, they are possible with God. And when there's no room for doubt, when God answers, he'll get all the glory. Well, Elijah prayed to Jehovah in verses 36 and 7. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Elijah prayed, recognizing that Israel had a past, a history, an identity with God to whom he was praying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs. Abraham was the one to whom the promise was given. Isaac was the son born in the old age to show that God was fulfilling the promise. Isaac, or Jacob, was renamed Israel, showing the result of the promise. Elijah prayed knowing that there was a purpose in his prayer. Let it be known. Right now, they don't know, they don't believe this day, now, today. He prayed for God to reveal to Israel three specific things. That, that thou art God in Israel, that I am your servant, 
that I have done all this according to your word. Note the fervency as he repeats the request for God to hear his prayer. Two times he says, hear me, O Lord, hear me. And God does hear. He repeats it in verse 37, what he prayed in verse 36. That they may know that thou art the Lord God. Then he adds one, one more request. That thou hast turned their heart back again. That's what revival is. Revival is never man-made. And we need to pray that God will turn the hearts of his people back again. This is a short prayer. It took me about 25 seconds to read. You compare that to the all-day efforts of the prophets of Baal. It's not how long you pray, it's to whom you pray. God answered, verse 38. And just like all the other miraculous things in the Bible, he sums it up in just a few words. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And just like that, it's gone. This fire was obviously from God. The fire didn't come from within the altar. It didn't come as, a, as an explainable act of nature. It's called the fire of the Lord. And of tells us that God was the source of this fire. It was his fire. Don't try to do the work of God for him. There are some things that he asks you to do. And in those things, do them. And then wait for God to do his work. Evangelist Billy Martin used to tell the illustration as a boy. His father would say, you go get the wood for the fireplace, and you bring it in, and you can put it all in the fireplace, but don't light the fire. I'll do that. And here God provided the flame. And it's up to us to do what God has called us to do, to be in the word of God, to be on our knees in prayer, to expect great things in faith from God. But don't do his work for him. Let him work, and he'll get the glory. It was, this fire was all-consuming. It, it licked up the, the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water in the trench. That speaks of the totality of our sacrifice. God doesn't want just a part of you. He desires full surrender. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tell us that. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. And so this was a complete sacrifice. Now we come to the outcome, verses 39 to 46, the result. Notice the response of the people, verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. They all saw it. They fell on their faces, a, a, a sign of absolute submission, of surrender, Literally, they said, Jehovah is Elohim. Yahweh is the eternal God. They had not answered uh, a word back in verse 21. Remember that? They were silent. And now God has proved himself to be God. And they are quick to acknowledge that he is the God. Elijah has a request in verse 40. Capture and slay the prophets of Baal. They went to the to the brook Kishon, which is just down the, the slopes of Carmel. And they were slain there. Verses 41 through 46, there's an announcement of rain. Elisha said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. 
So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Again, he's being obedient to what Elijah tells him. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and when he had cast himself down upon the, the earth. He put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. He said, Go again, seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up. Say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. I find it interesting that Ahab is told to get up and eat and drink, and Elijah goes to prayer. He prayed earnestly. Uh, remember James chapter 5, verse 18, and it says, and he prayed again. He prayed first that it wouldn't rain on the earth, and it didn't rain, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. His prayer was humble. We see that in his posture. He casts himself down on the earth. His head is bowed between his knees, his prayer was faithful seven times. He didn't stop. He said, okay, no, no sign of any cloud? Well, we'll just skip that part of the miracle. It was enough to see the, the fire from heaven. No, he didn't stop praying. His prayer was effectual. Storms would most often come from the west to the east. They could be spotted over the Mediterranean Sea. Mount Carmel would be the first that would receive that storm as it would come to the east. The cloud was small, but it was big enough for Elijah to know that God had answered, and the rains fell. He ran to Jezreel, it's about 25 miles. God gave Elijah courage to confront Ahab and the prophets of Baal. God gave him faith to pray. God sent the fire. God sent the rain. And God strengthened this prophet to run 25 miles to Jezreel. How can you be like Elijah today? How can your words and your life prove to others that God is real? Remember his name? Jehovah is my God. How can you be an Elijah? How can you let others know that God is alive? Well, we're given it in the text. We start with rebuilding the altar. Come back to the place where you once knew the closeness of walking in fellowship with Christ. What was it that changed since then? Make things right with him. Take those stones, build them back up. Restore your own personal worship to God. Rebuild the altar. Second, believe that the Lord can do anything. It's not your work, it's his. He can do all things, he's omnipotent. Third, obey his word. Trust his power, and then watch him work. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that this passage of scripture will make an impact on our own hearts, that we, like Elijah, would be men and women who would stand up against the, the falsehoods of our day, the false religions, the false philosophies and ideals, and the things that people think will give them eternal joy. Help us to take the scriptures to them and show them the simple plan of salvation that only Christ can save. 
I pray that in this invitation time, you'll work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.